1: Gender and sexuality in modern Iran are frequently examined through the prisms of nationalist symbols and religious discourse. In Revolutionary Bodies, Technologies of Gender, Sex, and Self in Contemporary Iran, published with Bloomsbury in 2020, Kristin Surya Batmangalich takes a different approach by interrogating how normative ideas of women's bodies in state religious, and public health discourses have resulted in the female body being deemed as immodest and taboo. Through a diverse blend of sources, including popular women's journal, a red light district, case studies of temporary marriages, iconic public statues, and an HIV AIDS advocacy organization in Tehran, Mangalich argues the conceptions of gender and sexuality have been mediated in public discourse and experienced and modified by women themselves over the past 30 years of the Islamic Republic. In our conversation, we discuss the regulation of gender and sexuality through bodily technologies, tensions between state notions of modernization and Islamization, how Iranian women were visualized in the pages of magazines a microhistory of the red light district in Tehran, organizing sex work within Islamic frameworks through temporary marriages, reinforcing Islamic public morality through the regulation of public spaces, the disfiguring of female mannequins, the challenges of ethnographic research and learning to ask new questions, and notions of gendered work in contemporary Iran. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, here's my conversation with Soraya Batmangalich on Revolutionary Bodies, Technologies of Gender, Sex, and Self in Contemporary Iran. Welcome, Soraya. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
2: I'm great. I'm great.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I'm I'm, I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about your book, Revolutionary Bodies. This is really uh, very interesting. You're looking at lots of different uh, spaces and conversations and debates that um, don't show up a lot in um, the sources that I've read. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, But before we get to the book, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, Have there been uh, moments or mentors that have shaped um, you as a scholar in terms of either the, the locations and subjects you're interested in or the types of approaches you take? Um, What kind of got you to where you are today?
2: Sure. First, I'd like to thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I mean, um, because of this pandemic, it seems it was very anticlimactic, bittersweet, (laughs) anticlimactic. Publish a book during a period of time and then not go on the road. So uh, this is a different kind of uh, going on the road. So I'm very grateful for it. Yes, so who am I? Well, um, traditionally, if I offer you the, the general understanding of me, um, I'm an associate professor for the study of modern Iran at the University of Oslo, and I was trained at Columbia in Iranian studies under a man named Hamid Dabashi. Now, the, the, project that I, the projects that I have worked on, they're very interdisciplinary and um, have involved the help of multiple people, um, one in particular, Marnia Lasryk is at Hunter College. She's an awesome sociologist who sort of, when I started reading her texts on decolonizing feminism, it sort of transformed me in particular ways, but also simultaneous to me, reading more of Caratrice Spivak's work and um, you know, trying as best as possible to sort of follow her on campus and, and get her to hear my ideas. And um, and also a man named Gil Adnijar, um, who taught me the, wonderful theories and applications of deconstruction and so these four individuals have have a powerful influence in not only my training but also my you know, critical analysis and how i approach and interact with the world um, so in order any kind of biography of me should take them into account um of course there's a personal story of me being a a kid from Metro Detroit, who is incredibly precocious and uh, curious about the world, and um, born in 79 during the time of the revolution, and the daughter of um, Iranian leftists, political activists, and a Filipino mother. And um, uh, my father wasn't allowed really back in Iran until about 2001 or 2002. And after he was allowed back, I then went so from around 2002 to the present day, that, that commenced this sort of new construction of self, a kind of new consciousness um, of who I was in the world and my Iranian roots. And that's when I fortified my Persian and, and started more of a, a research into you know, certain questions that I had, but in particular to this Iranian, contemporary Iranian context. So um, I think that's what describes me.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, So uh, for this project, you uh, do lots of things, but one of the things you you did a lot of was a lot of field work. Uh, Several years in Iran, um, on the ground. Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experience in uh, doing that field work? uh, What were some of the challenges you faced, um, and then how did uh, this kind of book project emerge from these various locations that you were you were exploring?
2: Sure, I should say that the the ethnographic fieldwork that I started around in two thousand five six is not what the project ended up being by the time I sort of put it together in a dissertation form in two thousand twelve and two thousand fifteen um, when I was. Doing my masters, I was really interested in, in sort of constructions and forms of maternity um, in, in Iran, and um, as I and I was also in sort of trying to involve myself in some marginal way, but in in some way um, in the Iranian women's movement. So I've always been a feminist, but it's like when I started going to Iran around 2002 and 2003, by happenstance, I sort of. Um, fell into a group of the pioneers of Iran's women's movement um, during the time of the Khatun era. So this is around 1997 or so to about, um, I started meeting them in the early 2000s. And anyway, meeting them, interacting with them completely transformed not just my way of thinking and interaction with the world, but also my project. Right. So what started out as a project on maternity um, ended up as a project on regulation of sexuality and the various technologies in which this has been implemented by state officials, by people, how this has sort of been described in the body and so on and so forth. Um, and it's a, it, is a, it is a project that took around 12 years to complete, um, not just through the ethnographic work, but also allowing what I saw, heard and read to just remain within me so that I could go through a process of parsing, parsing through analysis that it needed time, right? I needed this kind of uh, marinating period or this simmering period to sort of figure out what did I see? What did I hear? How did I understand it? Did I understand it incorrectly? Um, and sort of to the accumulation of sources and discourses um, to sort of sift through it and make sense of it. So. Um, ethnographic fieldwork in Iran started out a particular way and ended up as something completely different. There were many challenges. um, And one of them had to be, well, um, I had to relearn how to talk to people. I had to relearn. I had to relearn how to, I had to learn and relearn certain social codes of engagement with not just um the, the subjects that i was dealing with the human subjects i should say but also you know my background in iranian culture which was born out of a kind of, of immigrant experience in the united states and so i came to went to iran and sort of thinking okay i'm going to be talking to women about their understanding of breastfeeding and so on and so forth and the questions i would ask them led to, led them to or led them and also to talk about very different subjects, um, having to do with not just intimate relations between um, partners, but also their experiences of coming to understand sexuality in the context of the Islamic Republic. And I did not understand that, right? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't formed in an environment whereby I had to navigate certain social codes in the same manner, right? Um, in Iran it's very different as you could guess it's very different setup whereby there are certain norms and social codes that from the beginning you you sort of have to learn to you have to sort of uh, negotiate them and there are particular red lines that um you're for instance if you're coming from a leftist family of some sort you know that when you go to school you don't say certain things about political discussions your family is having or um you learn to hide certain aspects of your life you know you're it's it's a different kind of performance and I didn't have that so much growing up. And so here I was this little, you know, somewhat punk 22 year old 23 year old trying commencing fieldwork, and just asking the wrong kinds of questions. So I sort of had to retrain myself in how to um, how to really understand the human experience from multiple perspectives. So that's why it took a long time to get my project in order because I, I couldn't see the boundaries of the project, and also I myself was sort of put at a disadvantage because I didn't yet understand the kinds of social and moral codes. I also didn't grow up in a fiercely, you know, religious Shia household. My dad was a, a leftist, um, sort of a leftist secularist who, when asked do you believe in God? He would say, I believe in God damn it. And I was also raised in a, a Catholic household because of my mother. So there was so much I had to, to learn and relearn. And there are no books for this, right? It's just experience, right? It's a lot of humility, a lot of humbling experiences, um, and a lot of just picking yourself up back again. But going back to this particular project, when I started out really trying to figure out what, are the, what, is, the, what is this maternity about, right? Is it really breastfeeding? It was by happenstance that I had, when I was one of my trips to, to uh, Tehran, around this period of time, there was a lot of blog chatter, social, early social media chatter about um, mannequins um, in Haftatir Square. For those of you who have been to Tehran, you know that Haftatir um, is an area where they sell so many mantos, which are like these overcoats that Iranian women where is the form of dress to wear in public, right? And then some of them, you know, the various colors and designs and shapes and so on and so forth. And so in this area, there are so many vitrines, window window vitrines of uh, or window displays, I should say, of mannequins sporting, you know, different styles. And the newspapers and blogs report talked about how these mannequins no longer had breasts, or that their breasts were being chopped off, and. Um, you know, window displays and um, window displays would just show them. So they would, they would show feature a mannequin with sort of jagged edges for the breast area or for the chest area with the clothing on top. And so I thought, oh, I want to see what this is about. So I went to the, this uh, clothing district and looked around and I thought, this is very strange, incredibly strange. And so when I would ask my relatives and certain friends and I'd say, what do you think about this? What is that? And the response would be, oh, the breast, the mannequins have breast cancer. And then they would just laugh. No, I didn't, I didn't take to this joke quite well. I thought it was incredibly eerie. And so I thought to myself, there's something that is happening here where of course the public response is to, to treat this as business as normal. Oh, that's just something that the, the state is doing to sort of keep women in line or to prevent a kind of, of social ills or, or social disorder um, from taking place because apparently, you know, the reason the reason the state line for doing this was if an onlooker particularly a male would look at the, the mannequins with their full breasts right even though clothed that they would become aroused and that it would perhaps lead to a kind of social disorder public disorder right um so in order to keep things in check um certain officials from the government just said go out there and make sure that these windows displays that they're sort of in a particular form that they're not presenting these mannequins in a particular way. So then I started asking these questions about what's fueling fueling this particular official preoccupation and hypersensitivity towards what became a kind of sexualized torso of a mannequin. So I was so curious about what are the norms, what are the values or what are the perspectives that are sort of being built into this or emerging through this, this regulation, right? And this interaction between you know the customer and the, the store owner or, or or even the male gaze and the mannequin i was just so in, intrigued by this right because it really had to do with concepts of of deviance that were sort of circulating around and what what constituted a kind of problematic sexuality so i then went back to to new york and i started uh, allowed this to sit in me um and i started to Wondering, I, I it just, again, it happened happenstance. I started thinking about this notion of, okay, sexuality, how is it being regulated? And then I started looking for the literature and it just so happened around, around 2007, eight, nine. Um, in Iranian studies, there were some seminal works that were being published um, that are coming from anthropologists and social historians. Um, I can name them now. One of them was Passionate Uprisings by Pairis Matavi. I think that came out around 2009. Um, Janet Afari, who is a historian um, based in the States, she wrote sexual politics in modern Iran. And then um, Willem Floor wrote, he's a social historian, he wrote social history of sexual relations in Iran, 2008. Also the team of Najbabadi and Babayan wrote um, a really wonderful book called Islamic Sexualities. So in this period of time, you see so many books talking about sexuality, sexuality, sexuality. And when I would read them, I would think, something seems off. A lot of them are not only speaking about a certain milieu among Tehran youth, or they're taking this kind of super macro historical um, uh, account or view, whereby they're positing um, pre-revolution, so pre-1979 revolution and present day, and it using historical sources, but it never, none of it seemed grainy and messy, right? Because if anyone who's lived and worked um, in Iran for periods of time knows it's incredibly, it's messy, right? There's not just one discourse that is sort of circulating, operating. There's multiple, multiple discourses at, at hand. And so you enter a matrix and, and any kind of book that's, that is published should access that multiplicity, those contradictions, the intersectionality. And so I thought to myself, I got to do something about this. So I, I thought it. I almost had this kind of mission to write a book that could convey the multiple, the multiple intersections, the vectors, right, that would talk not just about kind of state discourses of regulation, but like if I was, if if I was talking primarily about certain problematics that have to do with sexual deviance and regulation of sexuality, that I would talk about marginalized communities, right, and then I would talk about people who, not in a sense to sort of bring the periphery into the center, to have a kind of to start a different kind of conversation right i just needed that i wanted that Um, i felt that that wasn't coming out more in the publishing world and even among even in my classes because any class that i would take on women in the middle east or middle eastern studies or or gender uh, women studies they always would bring up those particular books that i would mention and it would make me so frustrated because i'd be like these are almost ancient so to speak right there's so many things that have happened that are not illuminating the dynamism of that, that site, which is Iran, right? And I'm not just talking about contemporary period, but I'm talking about, of course, early 20th century um, formulations of sexuality. And moving forward, I then, the more, it's like the more you research and the more you try to consult the core sources, the more you see that they're operating on these these particular grand narratives that situate sort of, that that are focused on 1979 as being a breaking point, right? You hear it so many times, it sort of marked this movement away from Pathavi regime, um, which was like a Western authoritarian modernizing regime that ended in 79 and then moved into the Islamic Republic, which meant um, Islamization of various institutions and of society, but very rarely do you read things that talk about the continuity between these periods. And so then um, because of my, due to my ethnographic work and the archival sources that I consulted, and the, you know, just time and time again, I just kept on seeing these trends that are of a repetition of regulating and, and just the, the, the modes and mechanisms in which um, um, sexuality is regulated or administered. And so on and so forth, and so I thought, okay, that's it. That's where I stand. I need to speak about that more. Um, I can go on and on, Christian. I can go <laughs> on and on. <laughs> yeah, but also in in my area of study, there's a really awesome anthropologist named Shala harry and she wrote this book, a seminal book in our field, um, called uh, I think it's called Laws of uh, Oh, what is it called? I'm forgetting right now. Law of Desire. Um, Shia Contemporary Marriage and Shia Islam. And I have to, I have to consult the, her quote, because it, is, it sort of forced me into the space to think differently about how I understood sexuality. In this book, she says, in Iranian society, sexuality comes to be a cultural signature because of which it is simultaneously perceived as precious and treacherous to its original master. And so, of course, when you hear this, you think, ah, oh, treacherous and, and, and precious, and you perhaps um, navigate towards that. But no, 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 I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in this expression of sexuality comes to be a cultural sinister. So focusing on the movement, how something comes to be prominent or the center of attention, right? How it moves into a tenuous space. And in particular, where there's these kind of shifting perceptions that determine boundaries. Boundaries of acceptability for a woman, right? On what she should do, how she should act, how she should engage with the world, but how she should form her sexuality, right? But historically, you look at any kind of, historically, and also if you look at certain Islamic discourses as well, sexuality has always been precarious. It has always been part of a, a larger conversations and opinions. And it's always been, it has always been contradictory, right? Because it, it has always been dependent on a gaze that is just moving and shifting, right? Um, but a gaze that is, uh, how we understand that gaze depends upon our understanding of that beholder of the gaze, right, and if that beholder has a kind of power, and so on and so forth. So then I started looking at, at least in the contemporary times, How have the clerical authorities in Iran, how have they come to regulate something that has been historically so fluid? And also in Islamic discourse, in legal jurisprudential discourse, has been a fluid, immobile concept. How do they sort of limit it to a particular framework? Right? How did they decide, how did they go from from thinking that, okay, women are, by virtue of having this particular body, or having a particular shape, that this then leads to a sexual arousal, and then leads to a social disorder, and then therefore they should take care of it by disfiguring a non living thing as a way to kind of control public morality. So yeah, I went deep into the quote unquote heart of darkness, and I started looking at you know, multiple discourses um, that dealt with you know women's status, their health, morality, modesty discourses um, that feature in you know not just um, um, of the Quran, but in like um, certain Risalat, which are the opinions of the al the who are the grand ayatollahs among the Shia hierarchy, and what are their opinions on sort of obedience, women's obedience, or or this um, something called tamkin, which is a kind of uh, um, one would say, it's a kind of, is it like a, an, an obligation of a woman to sexually um, satiate their husbands when their husbands want to initiate um, sexual relations? So I literally looked at all of these particular subjects and I looked at how all of these discourses when they met in the form of regulation, why then, not necessarily why then, but how they became almost forgotten. If that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Because when you, if you talk to people today, you say, hey, do you remember that time when those mannequins, the breasts were sort of lobbed off? Well, they'll say, really? When? So it's also, it's been forgotten. It's been, it's almost been, it's folded into the annals of the history of Iran, and in particular, Islamic Republic Iran, as saying like, oh, this is just something that happened and done with and over with. But then that brings out other questions of what other occasions, events in history, what other discourses have also been folded into the annals of history and then forgotten? So when you, when you go down the rabbit hole, Christian, you, you learn more and more about different sites of regulation throughout Iran's history that are compulsorily forgotten, either because of some particular kind of trauma or because they, they want to forget it because they're trying to build a new ideal. Or build a new reality and in my work that's what led me to looking at sex, sex districts in iran um, that for you know 100 years uh, were in operation and how they're regulated by the government um and then also looking at different sort of modes of regulation through uh, certain forms of let's just say like a you know this is an iffy territory i'm going into but using temporary marriage um to confirm or allow for um prostitution or or you know um, sexual relations between unmarried people or for a period of time to be married um in a um, religiously legitimate or sanctioned way and so i just i literally just tried to as best as possible to to see how these modes and technologies of relation, regulation sort of fed into each other. and That's what produced
0: revolutionary bodies, technologies of gender, sex, and self in contemporary Iran. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: it's great the, the the way you kind of talked about this like folding into history I, I think is a, a it just made me kind of rethink uh, reading through these chapters because that's a great way to put it um, because a lot of these um, kind of continuities uh, over time get get lost in this kind of uh, you know reproduction over and over um, using similar strategies and uh, you you talked about uh, some of these uh, vignettes that you explore, Um, the regulation of gender and sexuality um, in Iran through kind of case studies, uh, so to speak. Um, And just for folks that are listening, uh, these are, these, I think, would work great in classrooms, like, so even if somebody couldn't use this whole book, um, you know, it'd be great to, like, you you know, use the chapter on, um, uh, you know, like, artistic representations of women and how statues and mannequins are, are regulated uh, within a class. Um, so, yeah. so people should definitely um, kind of dive into these. So in the, in the opening chapter, you uh, kind of track the history of uh, visual representation of women in this, in this popular women's magazine that crosses both the Pavlavi era and the Islamic Republic era. Um, and you kind of, uh, you look at the juxtaposition between these kind of modernization uh, ideals and then this kind of process of Islamization. Can, can you talk a little bit about how uh, Iranian women are are visualized in the pages of these magazines? And then what do you see as some of the connections and, uh, and differences between these uh, two different periods?
2: Sure, so I think you're referencing, um, I think it's called Art of what is it called? I forgot the name of the chapter. Believe it or not, art a reform. I should look at my book.
1: Reform and art of visual persuasion.
2: Reform and art of visual persuasion. Thank you, thank you. Um, And that's taken. That's taken from. Well, it 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 focuses primarily on uh, Zanaruz, which was a seminal uh, weekly journal that was targeting women and was started. I think 19, 1964, 1965, and it, it was trying to appeal to um, modern Western reforms that were commenced during something called the Inglalda or the White Revolution. Okay? And it was an attempt of the government to have radical reforms in society that... You know, could sort of raise Iranians to a, a different standard or different level, so that they can improve their literacy rates. Um, ref- there was also land reforms that took place, um, also trying to, um, um, to to enfranchise women and so on and so forth. And Zanaruz came at this period of time when the queen was sort of um, um, was trying to to promote to Iranian women a kind of different modern way of life, right? So. She is the person who um, sort of starts off or p- offers an introduction to Zanarus when it was first published. So that's particularly the the, the intro to Zanarus. Now, women were then given a whole series of kind of uh, suggestions as far as how they live their life and sort of given alternative lifestyles for them. So, um, Iran during this period of time is is particularly you know this agricultural traditional, um, of course, you do have an elite of, uh, of families that are involved in the industry and are involved in the government. And they're some of the first families to sort of send their children abroad. But this is not for the vast majority of Iranians. And so here we have these efforts that are top down um, and trying to find a, find a way to transform Iranian society to, as a way to kind of, "Quote unquote, ameliorate their life Western, through ameliorating their life through Western reforms, and in some ways, we're rejecting the kind of the lifestyles and the the forms of dress that they have. And so, Farah Pahlavi, the queen, you see her featured throughout this magazine in various settings, whereby she is with her family, um, um, doing many family portraits, or she's with traditional women, or she's you know out in the streets, and you know she." She plays the. She's almost the kind. She's the politician's wife, but it's it's a very different scenario here because it's she becomes this kind of emblem of the modern woman, right? But not just the modern woman. The modern woman who is also the queen mother, and so in this magazine there are multiple articles about um, not just her her you know modern lifestyle, but you also see at the same time a kind of her advertising a particular lifestyle through through various consumption, right? So in some of the portraits, there are televisions, um, there's, I mean, you know, beautiful clothing that she's wearing of the, the best designers and so on and so forth. But also at the same time, you have articles and pictures that almost promote, you can tell that the authors, maybe the intention is a kind of modern lifestyle where there is still this kind of, sexually available woman. And one of the, one of the um, moments in this particular chapter I feature is based on an article, which has a really fantastic uh, picture. And for those of you who are, please check out my book. You can sort of mm-hmm. see the original picture. And it's of a woman who's sort of sitting down and um, the article, she's sitting down and she has you know all of these, uh how do I describe it uh she she's like enveloped in all of this um she has all this the, somewhat minimal tight clothing I should say um but of course covering covering her right she's somewhat modest and it is an article that is talking about Ramadan so this period of fasting and how we can use Ramadan as a way to lose weight and more and more When you go through various issues of this journal, you see that it is trying to promote this almost Iranian woman who is also sexual, the Iranian woman who pays attention to her weight, the Iranian woman who likes this sort of uh, capitalist um, life in Paris and London this particular portrait and then you see so many iterations of it, so many examples of this, and then you you feature you go into 1979 and when the editors are sort of um editors change and you have a very different setup you have more of you know, the 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 iran for about two years goes through a period of, of cultural revolution where they try to they, they shut down universities and they shut down various institutions and they try to, uh, you know, change the, the staffing and to Islamize uh, the, the schooling and curriculum and so on and so forth. And you, you see this impact um, in this particular magazine to a particular point, right? So for instance, it, it, on one side you see articles on, on that are, you know, latently referring to women and the religious duties and the motherly duties and so on and so forth. But in the, you just look to the advertisements and it's about surgery. It's about losing weight. Um, it's about how to maintain uh, a, a good body and so on and so forth. And so then you, you start to see where's that, co- that continuity, right? It, 1979 seems less and less like, a, uh, like the break, breaking point, but more like, a, okay, yes, we're in a different regime, but at the same time, these ideals of how a woman should be, right? Um, not just mother and wife, so on and so forth. But still, the woman has to be available to her husband in a particular way sexually, or has to perform particular duties, right? Um, and so I just, I just kept on seeing this particular treatment. Right? And it's just hilarious, because it shows in this process of Islamization, nothing is straight, right? They were just, it was as if they were trying, the editors were trying to, to just make up things on the fly or trying to um, reform on the fly. But they had, when they said, okay, now we are the Islamic Republic of Iran, they didn't actually know what, how to do that, right? So they, you, can, you can see through trial and error how they're trying to reformulate what it means to be, a muslim woman or what it means to be a kind of uh, a muslim woman mother right and they're just they the i know the artists were you know putting forward all of these um who are making caricatures in the in the post 79 iteration of Xanaroos they're just drawing in headscarfs or um, oh, and you also start to see them the flattening of the bodies and so on and so forth and so it just charting this was a pretty fascinating experience right? to see how that process of Islamization, um, how it wasn't actually so hard in the beginning that people were just trying to figure out um, and and sort of by happenstance figuring out certain rules and regulations. And so when you start to see the messiness within which this Islamization process was initiated and um, how it endured then it makes you start to question, okay, then these this sort of contemporary attempts at regulating morality or the public in some way, shape, or form, that also has been equally as messy, right? Um, and equally as contradictory. There's a really fabulous uh, author by the name of Nazarene Shahrukhneen. She wrote a book called Women in Place. And it's the same. It's it's regulation, but of try, how the government has tried to regulate women in certain public spaces. And she almost says the same thing as I do, which is like, it's this policy making on the fly. and trying to figure things out through trial and error. Yeah, but of course, you know, state line doesn't say that.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because you can see these kind of uh, these threads that continue on even though there's a seeming change, um, mm-hmm. but it becomes very visible in this kind of comparative uh, approach you took. Um, another thing you do in the book uh, is you you provide a kind of micro history of the red light district in Tehran, um, and you talk about um, sex work and the, the kind of public image of prostitutes, both before the Iranian revolution. Um, and then also you look at um, kind of how this shifts afterward and you, you, you mentioned this a little bit in the uh, kind of the, the, the use of uh, the uh, temporary marriage as a way to kind of reformulate uh sex work um but can you tell us a little bit about this uh place this space right of uh, of sex work and and what its role was in in Tehran's uh society um and then how it shifted over time
2: okay can I first tell you how I came to know about this yeah um uh, yeah so when I was doing one of my interviews with women I was talking about uh, you know maternity, breastfeeding and so on and so forth that led into conversations about first sexual experiences for some strange reason and uh, a woman who I was interviewing started talking about um, what it was like when she was younger, when she first understood um, not intimacy, but just, sex. and she she understood it through her brother because she was doing laundry for the family, and she took out, you know, she got her her brother's trousers and found in the pocket of the trousers a prescription for syphilis, right? Treating mm. syphilis, and so. I asked her why is that you know i was curious about that and and she said well because the, i knew that he had gone to shah No, because i think he was only 14 or 15 at the time um, and i didn't understand what she meant by shah No, and then then she said oh it was a sex-like district in the southern part of tehran that was there from and like late 19th century um, regulated in the 1930s and then bulldozed and um, in, bulldozed and set on fire in 1979. Right? Um, and I just was intrigued by this. So then I started asking around. I asked to uh, first relatives, because, you know, you, when you're doing ethnographic work, you first start with the people that you know, who are nearest, <laughs> and, nearest and then you, you venture out. And I would ask uh, uh, relatives who were in their 50s and 60s, because in those who were 30, 40 I had no idea what, what this space was. Um, and I then began to start research into the history of sex districts, red lice districts um, in Iranian history, in Iranian modern history. And then I started reading up about this place called Shahernau, the new city. Um, there was another Nickname for it called the Citadel. and became a Citadel in the 1930s when there was a wall sort of built around it. And indeed, it was a, set, a red light district. And what is now has turned into a park, a beautiful green park with a place called Shahir which is like a, a little amusement park. And in this park, there is a gondola, there's a, you know, a little lake, man-made lake, and so on and so forth. But on this particular site in present day Iran, up until 79, there were about, you have to imagine a space of about 10 to 12 city blocks um, that was surrounded by a brick wall um, and it, it was a, a red light district where, according to some of the most um, you know, seminal reports from the, the late 60s, it was frequented by something around, I think if not, I'm not incorrect, it's like something like 16,000 men a day. And I remember reading this number and thinking, what? That's impossible, right? So I am sort of hesitating to say that particular number. It was in the thousands. And if you talk to anyone um, above the age of 50 or 60, it is part of their memory, and especially men, of sort of sexual development for them, right? Of how they lose their virginity. And then you start to read more and more stories if you go into certain archival sources. I mean, there's not a lot of information about it you find out more from a little bit about it from press reports about the madams who are in the space but you can find out a little bit from sociological literature because the space was regulated um they had uh, certain health officials and state officials go in um, health workers go in social workers to um uh, you know test the uh, sex workers and um yeah to, to just so they could keep the venereal disease in check and so you see a lot of you know, reports about this, but the kind of social history surrounding it and more so what happened to this space after 79, you don't read anything about that. Um, and so I, again, because of this, because I just became so frustrated in this almost just purposeful forgetting, right, something that was so huge and deep. Um, deeply integrated into Iranian society. Folks knew the coordinates too, right? Oh, shah, no. And they, you know, when you say that, they would, they would look at you a particular way because it, it meant a certain history of time when sex outside the home was regulated, was considered, it was necessary. And the more and more I talked to people, the more and more they would mention a very famous phrase from the Ayatollah I believe it's Ayatollah Talaqani, and he said, and I, I will always remember it the first time I hear it, heard it, he said, every house needs a mustera, which means a toilet. So essentially every house needs a site of like this kind of, you know, decrepit, of, of, of refuse of, of, sorry to be so frank, but the, the detritus of society, right? The, the crap of society, every place needs this particular site. And then you, you hear more and more and you read more and more about how certain clerics understood this particular space to be necessary in making sure that social order, public order was kept in check. Because there was a feeling that if this place was closed down, then any form of, of sexual activity outside the family home, that this would, sort of, this, this would spread, right? if you don't control the sexual desires of people and sort of house it in this space, and if you sort of let it go into the public, then they said more disorder. You know, this, this means more disorder for the population. And you know you find and you read more about what happened to the women, the madams, the prostitutes after 79, and it's, a, you know, it's somewhat of a tragic story that they sort of, some of them were were killed, the main madams were killed, but then others were sort of uh, fed into this system of um, reintegrating these women into society, but through particular menial jobs or or working on behalf of the Islamic Republic and defending the Islamic Republic. So, um, but defense could be um, not just in being part of the, the comités, which were sort of Making sure that people stayed in line after the revolution, um, but also, which was a very s- sad thing, saying that suggesting if these particular women with these pasts, if they married veterans, um, war veterans from the Vietnam War, that you know they would be absolved in a particular way from their transgressions of the past. So I sort of, I sort of pieced these, tried to piece these things together and. Um, Continue to see how um, this prostitution, which for, let's say, late 19th century to 1979, it was confined to a particular space, but then after 79 sort of enters multiple spaces. and, And if you go to any park in Iran today, you definitely see these kinds of transactions that are happening between men and women to, you know, arrange Sex, but that's happening. Um, supposed to, that which was happening um, underground, sort of out in the open, in a particular way. Um, but then you see the state's way of trying to deal with this or solve this particular problem of prostitution. And there have been various initiatives from the state, which they don't really like to talk about now. But uh, various initiatives to sort of legitimize um, this particular kind of work. And relation between men and women, um, paid sex uh, through the usage of muta or something that we call in, in Persian, and um, to legitimize it, and that has been a fascinating um, uh, sort of area of inquiry as well. So yeah, it's a, I started off again with a story about um, breastfeeding, you know, in curiosity which led me to contemporary marriage, and how it is uh, conducted in contemporary Iran.
1: And I feel like this is the kind of uh, the feeling of the book, you you kind of arrive in unexpected places. um, And you you take us through these journeys. And um, it's really an excellent book. There's there is much more and I hope listeners will will go and and pick it up. Um, I do want to ask you before we wrap up, though, uh, a little bit about some of the things you're working on now and what uh, we might hope to see from you. In the future
2: so my work because of this particular book it sort of put me in a position whereby i'm going to be staying back out of iran for a little bit for a little bit so i've been more interested in I've, we're studying this notion of work um the, one of the most recent things that i've been working on it's, it's the, the preliminary title is like not working nine to five Unraveling the Non-Working Mother and Post-Revolutionary Iran. And for any of you who know about uh, the labor market in Iran, um, according to recent statistics, about only 17% of Iranian women um, are seen as employed or involved in the labor market. And this is an incredibly low figure um, in large part. So compared to 64% of men, um, this is an incredibly low figure, especially because the it's often said that more than half or up to 65% of, of university students and actual graduates are women, right? So it can't just mean that women are getting their degrees and then they're just not finding work at all. Um, and according to these official statistics from Iran, um, the reason why it's such a low number, they say, is because women want to do, th- they want to go to their family, want they have certain sort of family responsibilities. But then this, of course, doesn't um, take into account the kinds of, of really and, um, hard working conditions that women are finding themselves in informal work, so in sort of black market work, of workshops, and so on, part time work, and work, and, and actually online work. So I'm really interested in sort of seeing when this notion of work, paid or un, unpaid, especially not just in the you know in the public sphere, but also um, household work, how that was constructed. Um, after the revolution, and sort of seeing its different developments. Um, And so I see this to be a rather fruitful area of inquiry, but we shall see, we shall see. Yeah,
1: it sounds exciting, and it sounds really interesting. It sounds similar in the way that, you know, you could arrive in very unexpected places. So, um, well, good luck on that project, and thanks
2: for talking with us about this wonderful book. Thank you, and thank you so much, Christian, and to your listeners for Hanging with me for the past 45 minutes.
1: That was my conversation with Soraya Batmangalich about revolutionary bodies, technologies of gender, sex, and self in contemporary Iran, published with Bloomsbury in 2020. Thanks again for listening to new books in Islamic studies.